Good evening. Welcome to another episode of the End Time Blog Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada. Today I'm talking about the question, is it revival? I'm actually not following the event now taking place at the Kentucky Christian College, Asbury University. Apparently, after the usual required chapel service that the students must attend, um, theology professor Tom McCall said on February 13th, quote, but this past Wednesday was different. He meant February 8th is when it occurred. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus. And then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence. And they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. And they are still there. End quote. And that it's been a week since he wrote that. They're still there in the chapel worshiping for the last week. Now, the chapel service that allegedly, you know, set this all off was held on February 8th. And I linked to it. You can watch that chapel service. It was a sermon on Romans 12. One person noted who had who watched it said that the sermon was absent a discussion of sin, repentance, cross, or confession of Christ as Lord. It's been a week since, and they're still there, and by now it's standing room only at this Asbury Chapel. People are singing, praying, crying, repenting. They are confessing sin. They are not flopping around on the floor or emitting hysterical laughter like some other places that call it revival. Is, is this what's happening at Asbury, a genuine move of God? Is it emotionalism, groupthink? The debate has been raging on social media. Now, I'm not here to settle that question one way or the other, but to help us think biblically about what revival is. And we can do that by looking in history and also looking, of course, at the Bible. One of the most famous revivals in history was the First Great Awakening that began during church services in Northampton, Massachusetts and Enfield, Connecticut, where Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That sermon was delivered in 1741, but the awakening began in various parts, including England, not just America, which were colonies back then, as early as 1730. In England, John Wesley was preaching fervently during a revival there, and in the colonies here, in what became the U.S., George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were preaching. Edwards was also praying. He had prayed for a long time for revival, and God answered his prayers. During the height of it and after, Edwards thought much 
on the mechanism of revival, the definition of revival, and how to determine if a revival is genuine. He sought to reconcile the mind, which studies the Bible, and the heart's affections for its author, with revival as the backdrop. And Edwards explains this in several of his subsequent works, such as a narrative of surprising conversions, which I'll link to and it can be read online for free. Also, Edwards wrote The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he wrote an account of the revival in Northampton in 1740-42, all linked below and free to read online. And he said there were two underlying causes of biblical revivals, prayer and the preaching of God's word. True revivals are not the product of man's efforts to bring it about, except for man's efforts in prayer and preaching. Edward relates that a revival began the same way in a number of cases in his time. Great groups of people seemed to have been seized, his words, been seized by the Spirit. Many who had previously been saved but doubted were now content in great assurance, and others who had not been saved suddenly were preoccupied with religious things including sermons, or meeting together in groups to study and pray, and forsaking previous dalliances with immoral hobbies. He noted that these people were dressing modestly now, and their conversations were seasoned with grace and of the Savior. Edwards noted that rare was a day when people were converted past middle age, but that many in the elderly category, as well as the young, were now converting. Well, was it genuine? We all wonder when we're either participating in or observing such a work and ponder, is it of God or is it of Satan? Misattributing to one or the other in error would be a disaster. Edwards pondered the same. In his treatise, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, Edwards said, quote, As to the fruits of this work, which we have been bid so often to wait for, blessed be God, for so far as there has been time for observation, they do appear to be abiding. I do not mean that none have lost their impressions or that there have been no instances of hypocrisy and apostasy. Scripture and experience lead us to expect these at such a season. It is to me a matter of surprise and thankfulness that as yet there have not been more. But I mean that a great number of these who have been awakened are still seeking and striving to enter at the straight gate. And Edwards quote, well, the passage of time will always tell. The work of God begins in a heart and will continue until the day 
Others, for many reasons, if not genuinely saved, fall away. The broad gate will beckon those. Some, Edwards noted, are prejudiced against the work of God in a revival, and they revile it. They do so out of sometimes ignorance of the facts or jealousy, not having seen or experienced such a thing in their own spheres, or they, quote, may dislike the present work because it supports and confirms some principles that they have not yet embraced and against which such prejudices hang about in their minds and they cannot easily shake off, end quote. Well, Edwards did go on in the above-linked booklet with noting marks of a genuine revival. One of them, he warned, is that a work is not to be judged of by any of the effects on the bodies of men, such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of the body, or the failing of bodily strength, end quote. He said that a person not exhibiting such effects on the body may indeed be genuinely converted, or a person who does exhibit such effects might be, for example, apprehending the horrors of hell upon their soul, or apprehending their own wickedness in the face of a holy God, and thus trembling from righteous fear. So in his booklet, after giving the negative remarks, the negative marks of a true revival, Edwards continues with genuine marks of a true revival. And he said foremost, quote, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts, this is a sure sign that it is a true and not a false spirit. End quote. Well, his booklets make for interesting reading, to be sure. However, Jonathan Edwards was not the only person concerned with whether an awakening or a revival was genuine. The Second Great Awakening occurred in America in the late 1700s when Ebenezer Porter observed one between 1773 and 1778. He wrote his book, Letters on Revival, and noted the results of revival, which he listed as changed lives, assembly faithfulness, unity, humbled pastors, and a spirit of gratitude. The chapel library also offers one of their entire magazines on revival. They have a monthly called the Free Grace Broadcaster, and their issue 223 has within it many good essays on revival. And you can read it online for free or order a free hard copy that they'll mail to you for free. In that issue, Free Grace Broadcaster, issue 223, authors and the topics on revival include What is Revival? by Horatius Bonar, who gives a helpful definition of and a general introduction to that subject of spiritual awakening. There's an essay by Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
called Motives for Revival. And many Christians pray and long for a mighty move of God's spirit in revival. But what should our motives for this be? He writes. Charles Spurgeon wrote Preparation for Revival. And he earnestly exhorts for Christians to prepare their hearts for revival by agreeing with God and his word and his ways. In that same issue, there's an essay called Pray for the Spirit by James Alexander, which says there can be no revival without a mighty outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. God's people must pray to our precious, gracious Heavenly Father for just such a blessing. Robert Murray Machane wrote The Outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Charles Spurgeon, in another essay in that same issue, wrote solemn pleadings for revival. Horatius Bonar wrote the men God uses in revival. And this is a challenging and provocative look at the kind of preachers that God uses in spiritual awakening. William Reed wrote preaching for revival. And Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote Crucial Doctrine and Revival. It's a really, really good um, issue um, from Chapel, from Mount Zion Chapel Library. And one more, that issue ends with The Effect of Revival by Jonathan Edwards. It's a firsthand observation of what God-sent revival really produces in sinful men and women. Now, Paul Washer has spoken about revival and reformation. He speaks of them both together usually. And he said, quote, many people have the idea that they're going to pray in a revival. Other people say, well, revival will come whether you pray or not. I am not in either one of those camps, but I know one thing. When I see men, women, and young people all over the world praying for an awakening, to me, that is the first fruits of a revival. And I can count on the fact that he who gives these first fruits will bring in the first full harvest. R.C. Sproul, I'll put these links in the show notes for you, wrote a short essay called The Spirit of Revival. And it, Sproul said, quote, It is noteworthy that this period in history is commonly referred to as the Reformation and not the Revival. What is the difference between Revival and Reformation? As the etymologies of the word suggest, Revival describes a renewal of, spirit, of spiritual life, while Reformation describes a renewal of the forms and structures of society and culture. It's not possible to have true reformation without first having a true revival. The renewal of spiritual life under the power of the spirit is a necessary condition for reformation, but not a sufficient condition for it. Therefore, though it's not possible to have reformation without revival, it is possible to have 
revival without reformation. End Sproul's quote. The most startling awakening was what occurred at Nineveh under Jonah's preaching. Jonah was disobedient, but he was a true man of God. He preached of this holy God to the pagans at the cruel and inhuman Nineveh. And they heard. Jonah 3.5 and also 3.7-9 says, And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat, and do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God with the strength that they may each turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. End of the verse, quote, The king of Nineveh was acknowledging the sovereignty of God there. He had put on sackcloth himself. God saw that their repentance was genuine, and he did relent from the doom formerly pronounced on the Ninevites. Now in Acts 19, 18 to 20, we read that the Spirit of God entered many at Ephesus, and they repented. Those verses say, quote, Also many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Spencer Smith is a YouTuber who comments on cultural events in Christendom. He went to Asbury and stayed at the chapel for two hours, observing, taking notes. He said that people were openly confessing their sins. That's the first part of a genuine revival, as seen what we saw describing, uh, describing the Ephesus revival. But the second part remains to be seen. That is, was the word is the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing? The college at Asbury is host to a nest of false organizations such as Passion Conference, Bethel, etc., for the College Day of Prayer that was scheduled to um, be on their campus next week. Now, if the College Day of Prayer organizers are part of this revival, they will repudiate those organizations and not accept their presence and their partnership anymore, no matter the financial cost at this late date to stop their entry. Thinking of the people who burned their scrolls and their idols to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver, Smith said, actually, the Kenneth Copeland folks did arrive on campus to enter that current revival going on, and they were asked to leave. 
And that's a good sign. The word of God prevailing is the key. Now, whether the event going on in the Asbury Chapel is a genuine move of the Spirit or not, well, time will tell. Matthew 3.8 says we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If the Asbury folks are truly repentant, they will not fall away, and they will bear fruit for the glory of God. As always, we pray for more to come to know the Lord, more and more prayer every day as the world darkens. We Christians are the light. Has the light come upon students in Kentucky? One hopes, but no matter what, let us proclaim Christ and not lose hope nor grow weary. Well, this has been another episode of the End Time Blog Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Prada. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.